Good morning. Morning. And let's be in class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, what a joy it is to come part and study and join with uh, heart-minded people who are looking to draw closer to you. We ask that your spirit will join us today, enlighten us, and help us be transformed to be witnesses for you in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of announcements. I want to remind people of the Power of Love training and equipping course, January 17 to 19 in Dallas. Uh, you go to the website, and you can see a link, and you can get the entire schedule of events. We now have over 300 registrants that have registered to come, so we're going to have a really good attendance. Uh, all meals are provided, and we've asked for people to have a, a registration fee. I can tell you the fee does not cover the cost of the meals that we're providing, but we've done that because we wanted to have people who would actually show up after they register rather than just register and go, ah, I don't feel like one now. So, um, but the cost, the registration cost jumps at the end of this week. So that you still get a $40 reduced registration. You register by the end of this week. So I want to remind people of that. So before we get into the lesson, we're doing lesson number eight, God and the Covenant and the quarterly Ezra and Nehemiah. And I received an email this week um, from an online listener in Australia, Stephen Gerben, and he writes, Hello, Come and Reason Ministries. I have a question regarding the Bible study of Nehemiah and Ezra for this quarter. Did the leaders, their Babel and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, needlessly invite conflict? In Ezra 4.2, the Israelites who never went into exile claim to worship the same God, yet their help is refused by Zerubbabel. Uh, Ezra exhorts the exiles to follow the Torah and then tells the Israelite men in interracial marriages to separate from their families. But in Malachi 2, God says marriage is a covenant that should not be broken. Nehemiah tells the people who aren't Israelite that they have no part in rebuilding the wall. It seems from reading these two books that while the leaders were dedicated to God, they were being exclusive on a basis of race. This has mixed results with some greater commitment, but also greater opposition. By the end, Nehemiah, by the end of Nehemiah, people are still ignoring the Sabbath, so he threatens them. Do these two books teach indirectly that being partial and coercive will not lead to a change of heart? Their approach seems to be the opposite of Jesus' method and God's call for Israel to be the light to other nations. Wouldn't it have been more effective to accept these folk and teach them the truth of God's love through words and actions, truth, love, and freedom to, to choose? I would be grateful to hear your perspective on, on the lessons uh, we can take from these situations. Thank you for your ministry. It throws new light on God's love and mercy. All right, guys, what's the answer? <laughs> what do you think? What law lens are they looking through? Brilliant. And the first question was, what law lens are they looking through? And for those who aren't familiar with that question, when you hear the word law, what comes to mind? Do you think rules like we have in this courtroom? Or do you think law of gravity, laws of health, laws of physics, the laws upon which reality operate? God is creator, builds reality, and his laws are the laws upon which reality operate. Do you think when you answer Bible questions through the lens of God as creator, or do you see God and put him in the role of running like a human magistrate, just a system of rules that he becomes the enforcer of? Because once you ask the question of the law lens, that really then sets the context. How does the law lens help? Because the context. You say, okay, through design law lens, then what, what's, what's going on? What's the context? Well, human, humanity is where? We're in sin. Well, we had humanity get in sin. Well, that doesn't start with Nehemiah and Ezra. That starts where? In Eden, okay? And, and then what happened in Eden? When Adam sinned, it, it is the problem. Well, we have a judicial problem now. And, and, and we need a judicial solution. Or is the problem that the condition of the species human was actually changed? You know, ask the question. When 
Adam sinned, did God get changed? Did God's law get changed? Did the condition of humankind actually get changed? So the Bible says we're dead in trespass and sin. We have a condition without remedy, leads to death, so forth. So the human species is now in a condition that will lead to death after Adam's sin. But God doesn't leave mankind in this hopeless situation. Right in Genesis 3, he makes a promise that a Messiah is going to come. And so what do we find in Old Testament times? Now, let me ask you, does anybody believe that the human race could be saved if Jesus never comes as our Savior? No. So this is a requirement. So in Old Testament times, do you see that this is the landscape of the human species now out of harmony with God's design, now dead in trespass and sin, but God has promised to intervene by sending his son to fix the condition and open the pathway for eternal life, and Satan is working to stop it. No, let's shut it down. Let's try and block and oppose the plan. And the Old Testament is this context of this battle between God working to keep open avenue for Messiah and the devil working to try and shut down the plan. So what do we find? There was a time in human history, according to Scripture, there was only one righteous man left on the earth. Just get your mind around that for a minute. You look at this world today and you think, there's a lot of wickedness in the world. You watch the news and think, how horrible the condition of the world. Ever you ever think that? When you hear about the violence and the trafficking and the drugs and, the, and those families just get shot up in Mexico and you just look and you see the disaccord, you think, how horrible. But do we think there's only one righteous man on the whole planet? What, what would the world be like if there was only one person on the planet or at least one family, only eight people at the most, if you want to extend it, um, that were working with God? The rest are not. They're gone. They're over the hill. They've, they've hardened the heart. I don't think we can imagine why Genesis 6 says that it was violence and violent all the time. It was a corrupt and violent and horrible place. That was the way the earth was. And so what did God do? God intervenes to keep open the avenue for Messiah. That's what he does, right? By sending the flood, not to punish, but to save. Because without an avenue for Messiah to come, the whole species is lost. So he takes an action because He's about to lose his last working members of the species that, that he can save the species through. Act of mercy, act of grace. Now, after the flood, Satan doesn't have to focus on the entire human species anymore. Because God has revealed the Messiah is coming through one branch of the human family. All Satan has to do now is destroy that branch of the human family and he shuts down the avenue for Messiah. And this is why you see the, why, have you ever wondered, why do we have primarily the history of, of, of the Jews recorded in the scripture? We don't have much about the Chinese. Why is that? Because God doesn't love the Chinese? No, Abraham is the father of many nations, or all nations, that's right. So the, the Messiah is, is, is the seed is going to be a blessing to all nations or all people. No, God wants to save the whole race. For God so loved the Jews that he sent his only begotten son. No, for God so loved the world. There's one species that became terminal in Adam, and God has sent his son for the purpose of saving the species. However, he identified a particular family that he was going to work with in order to be the avenue for the Messiah. That family was the Jewish family, or the the family of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And that's why we have the recording of their family, because it's the path where the battle is being waged between good and evil in Old Testament times. And so Satan doesn't have to work on destroying the Chinese now. 
or the Native Americans or the Africans. He needs to destroy this one branch. That's where the Messiah is coming. Without that, that branch, Messiah is not coming. So he focuses attention there. And then with that in mind, he's working to destroy this group. Do we see any wisdom in God's directions to sever the ties with the wives? Or should, let's reverse it. Do we see any strategy on Satan's part to infiltrate Israel with non-believing spouses? Is there any strategy on his part that could undermine God's plan? Well, I don't know. Is there any evidence? Let's see, Samson and uh, Delilah. Did that undermine Samson's usefulness at all? Solomon and his many non-believing wives, even the wisest, so-called wisest man, did he have problems in his usefulness for God when he aligned himself with many non-believing women? Spouses. Yeah. So, so, Adam and Eve after Eve first. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we can see that marrying somebody that isn't committed to the Lord whether it's the man marrying a woman who's not committed or a woman marrying a man who's not committed, either direction you go, it undermines your usefulness for God's cause. doesn't mean God still can't use you, but you will have additional battles and birds and hurdles. And has anyone ever been on a ball team? How does a ball team function if all members aren't on the same team? Seriously, you're not going to be as successful as with all on the same team, if you know what I'm saying with that. So do we see one aspect of the instruction to divorce the non-believing spouse? Was God working to keep open avenue for Messiah and not actually trying to exclude the non-believers? And in fact, because he's working to keep open avenue for Messiah and to keep Israel, his chosen helpers, aides, priests, representatives, teachers, to keep them on focus and on task, not only is he, is he keeping open avenue for Messiah, it is a way to reach and show his love for the non-Jew spouses. He loves them too and he wants to save them and he needs his helpers to get them the gospel. And if he lets them infiltrate and pervert and corrupt the the core group he's working with, then Messiah doesn't come and the truth is lost. So I don't see this as him not caring for the other races. I see this as him absolutely caring for all the peoples of the earth. Anybody want to disagree with me so far and say, well, I'm missing a point because i got some more to go through, but... You know, what we're doing, you see the context of design law, what the actual problem is, what God's trying to fix, shifts our understanding of what we're reading, doesn't it? So the first rule of any caregiver or caregiving is the health of the caregiver. Because if the caregiver goes down, how much care is given? Many people miss that. They don't get it. They think it's being selfish. The farmer who wants to, 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 to feed the starving people of the world refuses to have one meal a day because he doesn't want to be selfish, so he won't eat. How many people does he actually feed in the end? None. Same thing. God has to protect his core people for the avenue of the Messiah, for not just for the Messiah to come, but also to constitute and strengthen and build teamwork and get on mission so they can be effective to be lights to the world, to prepare the world for the Messiah. This is part of the plan. So I don't see this as in any way God being racist or exclusive, but God being inclusive by consolidating the core. 
So were God's instructions to get rid of the foreign wives about race, or were they about heart devotion to God? What was it really about? And do we have evidence of that, that it was not about race? Well, who did Moses marry? He married an Ethiopian woman. That's who he married, an Ethiopian woman. And if you remember, Aaron and Miriam both had racial objections. And how did God deal with those racial objections? He taught them a lesson. He hit them with leprosy. Leprosy is, wasn't a punishment. It's an object lesson. It's a teaching tool. In the Bible, what's leprosy a metaphor for? Sin. Sin. Why? Do you know how leprosy works? Leprosy does not cause tissue damage. Leprosy destroys your pain fibers so you can't feel anything when you cut yourself or touch a hot burning stove. And it's by touching the hot burning stove or cutting yourself with a knife that you lose tissue. What does sin do? It sears or burns your conscience so you don't feel the damage to your soul when you're entering into sin anymore. That's what sin does. And so they are, are racist and objecting to who Moses marries, and God hits them with leprosy to say your hearts are insensitive. Your hearts are callous. And Moses, of course, intervenes say, God, don't do it to them. I think they've learned their lesson. And God heals their leprosy, but they learned a big object lesson there. Yes? Is that why they built the wall? Well, we're getting there. We're getting into the wall. Yes, is that why they built the wall? Absolutely, it's why they built the wall. They built the wall so that they could constitute their strength and prevent themselves from being diluted into the community around, prevent themselves from being infiltrated. Okay? So, other examples, though, besides Moses, who's Rahab? Who's Ruth? And, and Rahab and Ruth, where do we find them in Scripture in the New Testament? In the lineage of Christ. They're, they're, they're in his lineage, but, but they're not of Abraham's descent. So how did this happen? Because they, so, so because they assimilated. They converted. They accepted the God of Israel. They joined the tribe and uh, surrendered and submitted to the customs and laws and systems of Israel. They became part of Israel. God was all about wild branches being grafted in. All about it. The whole system. Anybody in Old Testament times could become part of Israel if they wanted. So I don't see anything going on that was racist going on here. So why were the then non-Jewish women in Ezra's day being the husbands being told to get rid of them? Why? Because what didn't they do? They didn't assimilate. They didn't convert. They didn't give up their foreign gods. They didn't surrender to Yahweh. They didn't participate and support the, the script. They went on stage as an acting troupe, acting out the wrong play. Last paragraph in Sunday's lesson, I was quite excited and astounded and happy to read this in the lesson. It says in the last paragraph of Sunday's lesson, it says, Unfortunately, the world embraced evil more than it did God, and the lineage of the faithful became very small, creating a real possibility of the eliminating any family through whom God could fulfill his word by sending the promised seed to save humans. At that point, God intervened with the flood. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yes. Can you believe that? It's now in the quarterly. Yeah. What? It's got to be true. That means it's gospel. No. What? I don't mean it that way. I mean that 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 people are starting to see a different perspective. The perspective is starting to shift. It's the first time I've seen this in an official 
publication, it's typically God was punishing sin. Now the lights are going on. People realize, no, no, there's a bigger purpose at work here. This is great. Second point to understand answering the questions that were sent is to understand that the Bible records real people who did real events that are historically accurate in my view, yet those real lives not only represent the history of those people, but they serve as object lessons for a larger reality. This gives us insight into some of the other questions about the wall, for instance. Why would Nehemiah not allow non-Israelites to participate in building the wall? Is it because non-Israelites couldn't carry as many bricks? They couldn't mix concrete properly? No, they could do the physical labor. Why? First, on the most immediate sense, could they be trusted? Or might there be an easier opportunity for infiltration and sabotage. So easier. So on the most superficial level in their day, it was easier opportunity for their enemies to pretend to be on their side and come in and infiltrate and sabotage what they were doing. So on one level, they kept them out just to secure the operation. But on the object lesson level, what does the wall represent? The wall is symbolic of something. The wall functions as a hedge of protection. What in the spiritual realm is given as a hedge of protection. The law. The law law of God is a a hedge of protection. And so can we we be repairers of the breach in the law, which what we're called to do, repair the breach, the hedge of protection, rebuild the wall? If we bring people into our midst to work with us who still teach God's law functions like human law. Can we really repair the breach to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the mist? Call people to creator worship if we teach people that he functions no different than a Roman dictator. He just makes up rules, have no consequence, uses his power to punish people or break his rules. That is not repairing the breach. That is perpetuating the break in the actual understanding of God's law, the hedge of protection, which is his design law upon which life is built. And so that's why in the object lesson we don't bring people in who aren't part of the team, because if we do, then they go out representing the organization, but they're still perpetuating the distortion, and people's minds remain fearful of God, and they don't trust him, and they then create all these theologies to be protected from him. You know the theologies I'm talking about. I need a mediator to stand between me and the judge. If he doesn't stand there and hide me in some way with his rubber righteousness or his blood or his pleas or doing something to him, then that angry, wrathful, just God is going to use his power to torture and kill me. And this is typical Christianity. And it's not true. It's not even biblical. It's not even close. For God so loved the world. God was in the Son, reconciled the world to us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son but gave him up, how will he not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns Christ? Jesus? He's at the Father's right hand and, what's the next word? Is also, also interceding for us. The biblical story is that humankind was damaged and dying because of Adam's choice. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together are working to remedy the situation, united as a, our God is one God, a team, a unified God. The lie that we have been, that foisted upon us are that there's a division in the Godhead, We've got a loving, sacrificial Savior who pleads to the angry, wrathful Father to keep him from killing us, all based on the lie about God's law. So we are to repair the breach. 
What about the threatenings to keep the Sabbath and the other laws, the threatenings? What's that about? Remember the Sabbath day to keep yourselves holy. Well, I'm talking about in, in Nehemiah's day. He's threatening them. What was the threatenings about? Do parents ever threaten their children who play in the street? Seriously, if you have a child playing in the street, do you give them a threat of some kind? Now, is the threat really the source of harm to the child? Or is the threat necessary for the immature child to fear you for long? I'm afraid daddy will punish, so I'm staying out of the street. I'm not afraid of getting hit by a car. <laughs> I'm afraid daddy's going to punish. See, that's a childish understanding of the world. That's the old, childish understanding of the Old Testament. Yes, God often threatened like a parent threatens to protect the damage that you don't even understand is about to happen to you when you're worshiping a golden calf. They didn't get it. And so, yes, there's these threats coming. And as God used might and power through Old Testament times and many times, understanding the, the large landscape now, what's the large landscape of the Old Testament? What is it? Teaching tool. It is a teaching tool, but what's the large landscape? What's actually happening in reality in the Old Testament? Preparation for the king. That's right. God is sending Messiah. Satan is trying to block Messiah. That's the, that's the landscape. And so God used power in Old Testament times in ways he has not used power since Christ came. So he sent a flood. We already talked about the flood. And after the flood, that great use of incredible might and power, unbelievable, we can't imagine. That, I mean, seriously, you've been in a bad storm, maybe a hurricane, a tornado, you've seen a bad storm, you understand that bad storm affected how much of the planet? <laughs> the whole planet. We, can't, we really can't comprehend the, 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 the power that was displayed at the time of the flood. It's beyond us. It would have, we might have probably died of a heart attack just seeing it. Is that scary? Said that Satan himself feared for his life. Satan himself feared for his life. It's that much display of power. And so after that much display of power, though, we find that immediately humankind is loyal and faithful to God. <laughs> Wait, no, they're building the Tower of Babel, and they're in rebellion already. Okay, ten plagues of Egypt and the Red Sea parts, and they walk through on dry ground. Another big display of power, right? And Israel is very loyal and faithful. Or 40 days later, they're worshiping a golden calf. Wait a second. What are we learning here? Mount Carmel, big display of fire comes down, consumes the big display of power. And Israel after that is faithful and loyal. No, what do we learn? God cannot achieve what he wants by might and power. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the spirit works as the Lord. Truth, spirit of truth and love. Truth presented in love leaving people free. Because he wants our love, he wants our loyalty, he wants our trust, he wants our devotion. You can never get love, trust, loyalty, and devotion by threatening to kill people or torture people who don't love, trust you, and are loyal to you. You can never get it. Well, if he can't get it by using might and power, why is he using might and power then? Because he has to keep open avenue for Messiah. And that's what, so why it didn't win people to might and, uh, love and trust, his use of power in Old Testament times did keep open avenue for Messiah. Yes? Well, you see that in Exodus right after the Ten Commandments. And when, when the people, starting in verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. 
They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Mm. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sin. There we go. So how many though Christians today, today, after all I've just told you, are still teaching that God will use might and power to force his way? They're still looking for a God to come with might and power to punish sin, to punish the nations, a rod of iron. And when this God, this, this being of supernatural powers appears and begins to use power to punish people who won't follow him, how many Christians are going to go, this is our God, we've waited for him? How many of the Jews would have worshipped Jesus if he'd used power to throw off the Romans? And notice Jesus didn't use power because he's arrived. He doesn't need to use power like that anymore. I'm here now. The avenue has been secured. Now I can finish my mission. Does the context help you make sense of Old Testament? Absolutely. It will clear it up for you over and over again. Sodom and Gomorrah in the seven cities, same thing. Over and over again, you come back to this context. That's one big piece to understand the context. Hope that answers your question down under. So now we're going to Sabbath lesson. Memory text says, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. We will not neglect the house of our God. Question, what is a covenant? That's what the uh, the lesson said. First paragraph says, it's a legal establishment of a relationship between God and his people. A legal establishment. Hmm. I'm hoping you guys, when you read stuff, your brains go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Legal establishment. If it's a legal establishment, what law lens am I looking through? You're immediately in the, in the wrong world. You're in the Satan worldview. God's government is design law. Satan's government is rules and contracts. What it is. So, but questions you should start asking. Okay, wait a second. If this is a legal contract, um, where do I file my paperwork? What court do I file that with? Um, what are the legal consequences for breaking the contract? Is it an infliction of punishment in some court? Is there a judicial process? Do I have right of appeal? Do I get a jury trial? What binds one to the covenant? Is it an external threat of being sued or punished? And, and if it is an external threat, well, God's in charge, and if you don't keep the covenant, God will punish. If it's an external threat, what happens to your ability to love somebody who is waiting for you and watching you and monitoring you, and if you mess up, they'll punish you? What happens to your love there? Not discipline. Discipline means to disciple and teach. Punishment means to exact vengeance upon, punitive. Do you love the, do you love the, the, uh, the, the judge here when they throw the fine at you? I just love you, judge. Thank you so much. Can I have a fine again next week? Because I enjoy this so much. <laughs> How is the covenant enforced? If it's a legal contract, if the contract is between you and the ultimate judge, if that's the contract then wouldn't the judge have to recuse himself to hear any disputes? Because he's a party to the contract. He can't really adjudicate the contract dispute, can he? He's a biased member now. Not objective. Hmm. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> I, I, I personally see the idea that the covenant is a legal establishment as evidence of the imperial law model affecting how people interpret the words and, and, and apply it. My view is that the covenant is the covenant of grace and is an expression of God's character and methods of love, and has nothing to do with legalities. 
people who want it to be legal, there's a reason people want it to be legal. And they get really upset if you tell them it's not legal. And the reason they want it to be legal is because they don't trust God. What they trust is the law. You see, the law is the great equalizer for the disenfranchised, for the weak, for the powerless. You see, no one is above the law. The law is a neutral standard. The law can't be bought off. We have to adhere to the law. It doesn't change, you see. So the law protects our rights. You see how sensible, and in the human world, that makes us equal. The, the right of kings, it doesn't matter. You're not above the law, king. The law applies to you too. You can't come and take my stuff because you're the king. You have to have a warrant. Pope, inquisitor, you're not above the law. See, the law is the great equalizer. And many people don't trust God, so they want to rely on a legal salvation because then God is obliged to the law. If the covenant is legal, then it makes the immature feel safe. That's what it does. That's what it does. This is why so many do get upset. It'd be like saying to those, those who don't understand design law, when you say that it's not a legal problem, for them it would be like throwing out the rules of baseball and telling them to play baseball. There's no foul balls. There's no fair balls. There's no rules that say you have to run to first base. You can go to third base if you want. Uh, some people out there trying to uh, hit, uh, hit bats with gloves and catch balls with bats. And, and I mean, there's just no rules. They're doing anything they want. It's chaos. That's how they view. They see oh, the world of the, the universe would be chaos if there isn't a law to be enforced. But see, the problem is baseball is an arbitrary construct. And therefore, arbitrary constructs, just made up, require some external rule system to be put in force. God's creation is built on design law. It doesn't work that way. It's not so. He builds reality and his laws are the constants it all operates upon. So there is only one covenant, really, one true covenant, in God's covenant of love, God promises to be true to himself and never waver. And it is what God's, God covenanted to do. It is the covenant of grace. Yet God has manifested this covenant in various ways, at various times, and in various circumstances for various people. But it's all the same covenant. For instance, think about this. A parent, parents in the room, when you had children, you had your child, if you're a godly parent, will you... Enter into a covenant relationship with that child. A relationship in which you have covenanted yourself to act in certain ways and provide certain things for this child. Was that true? Yes. Could you say that a loving parent has a covenant of grace to do what is in the best interest of the child? And how might that be manifested? Could the actions of such a loving parent be manifested by one? Discipline of an unruly child who's playing in the street. Or hugs of, to a hurting child who's fallen and gotten injured. Or a frightened child who got scared by a dog. Or promises to reassure a doubting child. Or sacrifice to provide remedy, a kidney for a child in, in renal failure. Could, 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 could your covenant manifest itself in multiple ways, but it's one covenant. Yes. Tend to also include always watching that child to see if he falls. 
for the purpose of? Lifting him up. Right. So I love that. So the metaphor I've, I've sometimes used, because I've seen it used, <laughs> you know, God is a great police officer in the sky, sometimes people will say. So I, just imagine, guys, that you're driving around town and you look in your rearview mirror and you see a police officer right behind you. You turn right. Police officer turned right. You turn left. He gets a little closer, turns left. Are you starting to relax and feel the ease? I'm so thankful. I have safety and security here in the community. Or does your anxiety level go up? Do you begin running through your mind? Oh, do I have a burned out tail? Do I have my, I forgot my registration. Uh, did, did, was I supposed to, was I, was I in the wrong lane when I turned? Uh, you start running through all the possible things. Are you feeling more secure and at peace and safe? Are you feeling more and more like fearful? <laughs> That's, that's the imperial law model. That's, that's having God follow you to find a, and to, with his recording angel to record every sin you've ever done, to give you the demerit in the book of heaven, to make sure you get proper punishment. That's a complete fraud based on the human law model. I like this model better, the Tour de France, which is a, a bicycle you know, race that happens annually. It's a long, long race. And when you're on your bike, you have a, have a car that's part of your team that follows you everywhere on that whole thing. They're just right behind you, following you on this thing the whole way. And why are they following you the whole way? So that if you get a flat tire, if you wreck, if you fall, they're there to pick you back up, patch the tire, put a band-aid on your knee, and get you back on the road. So that's what you were saying, and that's exactly how we see God following us everywhere, for the purpose of healing, restoring, and helping us stay on the right road, not for the purpose of giving us a ticket. I love that. So... We see with the parent example, there's one covenant manifesting in different ways depending on the need. Now, if you go to Monday's lesson, it says the following in Monday's lesson. The Bible identifies seven major covenants that God has made with people. First covenant is for the Adam in Genesis 1 to 3. Second covenant with Noah, Genesis 6 to 9. Third covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12. Fourth covenant with Moses and the Israelites, known as the Sinaitic uh, and Mosaic covenant in Exodus 19, where the law was given. Fifth uh, covenant with, with Phineas, uh, where the where the uh, Levites became the priests instead of the firstborn um, of each family. Sixth covenant with, with David, that would be the uh, lineage, uh, the Messiah would come from his uh, throne and rule in his throne. And the seventh covenant is the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter 8 and 10. So are these seven different covenants, or basically one covenant communicated in a different time, in different space, to different people in a different way, but it's one covenant? Are they not all manifestations of the covenant of love and grace? So God promised, notice, first covenant to Adam. A covenant of grace. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And a Messiah is coming. That a Savior from God is promised. That Adam now, out of harmony with God uh, and God's design for life, suffering in a terminal condition, is not destined to eternal death because of Messiah's problem. That's, a, that's the covenant. I will come and save you. The same covenant was given to Moses. Worldwide flood is coming, and all who trust me can be saved. The purpose of the flood was for the fulfillment of the covenant to Adam, keeping Ovin Avenue for Messiah. So it was still fulfillment of the first covenant. Covenant, and, uh, no, and there'll be no further need for me to, to destroy the world with, with the flood again, because my purposes are now being carried out. Same covenant expressed to Abraham that the seed meaning Jesus will provide remedy to our terminal condition and be a father and be the remedy to many nations. Abraham's father of many nations. Fourth covenant. 
from God's side of things, it was the same covenant. He delivered his people from slavery, metaphor of delivering from bondage of sin, reveals his glory, provides the, the law, which is, an, which is not only a hedge of protection, but the representation of his plan and how we should be living. Gives his instructions in the temple to act out the plan of salvation and his plan to restore us, all designed to teach these things. The grace of God providing remedy. The fourth covenant was perverted, however, by the people, not by God's provisions. The people, instead of accepting on faith the promises that God was going to carry out and fulfill what he promised to Adam, what he promised to Noah, what he promised to Abraham, and now he's promising again, I'm still coming, I'm still going to be your Messiah. And here's some details to show you some more details of how that plan's going to be carried out. Instead of just trusting him to carry out the plan, instead they entered into a legal transaction with God. All the Lord says we will do. We'll keep our side of the bargain, Lord. And now once we keep our side of the bargain, then you have to give us health and wealth. They went from a covenant of grace where God provides remedy to a covenant of legal transaction, a legal covenant, and it perverted it and corrupted it. And that's often called the first covenant or the old covenant. It was from God's intention simply a greater detailed revelation of the original covenant, but they they corrupted it. And they did this because they wanted rules and they wanted a contract where they could hold God legally accountable. God, we kept our part. Now you've got to do this. You see this still in so many forms of Christianity. I prayed this prayer every day for 30 days, and if I do, God will expand my borders. I uh, paid my faithful tithe. God has to give me more wealth. I uh, got myself baptized in the right way. Uh, I found the right Bible promise. I went and hunted the Bible promise I needed. I got it. I claimed it, put it in the heavenly vending machine, and now God has to give me out the heavenly cookies I deserve. <laughs> many people, have you, have you not heard the Bible? Find your Bible promise. Claim the promise. You get it. This is the same type of thing. It's the old covenant. It's a fraud. That's not how reality works. It's the problem with the penal legal theology. So, yes. Then how do you relate to the promises? Because I have been claiming promises. Like, yes. My God will supply do, do, do you claim them as a vending machine? That you now, that when you go to a vending machine you with your coin. assurance that God... You know, because he made that promise to me that he will fulfill that. So notice how you're using the promise. The promise is to you to enhance your confidence and trust in God to reduce your fear. God gave you the promise so that it can read like a parent says, son, I promise you. And the son goes, I trust you, God. Okay, good. I don't have to worry about it anymore. It's to take worries off of you. It's not so you can go, uh, I've got an IOU from God. Yeah. Okay, God now, God now has given me this, uh, or this, you know, this chit, and he's got his little signature on it. I say, God, you, uh, you, you gave me this chit. It's a debt. I'm, I'm calling into debt. You, that's the promise that you promised. Now you've got to do because I've, I've found the right text, and I even, I even learned how to speak Hebrew, and I quoted it in Hebrew. <laughs> you've got to do it for me now, Lord. Better yet, King James. Or, the, or, or better yet, I, I even did it in the King James English. <laughs> But see, you see the difference in the promise. The promises are there for our reassurance, for our growth, for our don't, for us to ingest the word that we are to partake of, eat the flesh of, and the blood of Christ, which is representative of the words of truth. And those promises are to transform and enlighten and, and ennoble us. They're not to manipulate God with. See the difference? Yeah. Okay, so then that's the problem with the legal penal theologies today. 
they claim that they're based on faith, but in fact they're legal constructs that are designed to box God into a legal corner that the person with the legal theology then can control by their mechanisms and the actions and the claims that they make. Well, I claim the blood of Jesus to pay my penalty, so my record is being cleansed, and God, you can't punish me. I've boxed you in with my legal construct. And that's what they're for, because they don't trust God. Fifth covenant was with Phineas, and notice again, these are all one covenant, except it got, the fourth one got perverted by the, uh, by the people to be a legal construct, was never intended to be. The fifth covenant was uh, Phineas uh, stood up for God, and God chose the Levites to be his priest. Again, an object lesson that God will work through those who trust him and follow his instructions. God will provide the remedy, and the priest will share that remedy. And that's just a herring out of the same covenant. Sixth covenant is just confirming now with David that the Messiah that I promised back in Eden that I promised again to Noah, that I promised again to Abraham, that I revealed in the sanctuary services as the lamb slain, that that Messiah, that same covenant is going to be coming from your descent now, David, and reign on your throne. Same covenant, same promise, same Savior, to treat the same condition. And the seventh covenant is the actual fulfillment where Christ actually comes, picks up humanity damaged by sin, and fixes the problem, cures the condition, provides the remedy. And now... There are, well, how many covenants are there? Seven or two? One? And then the one corrupted by humankind. There's the one that's the covenant of grace, and then there's the one that's the covenant of law, the legal covenant. Those are the two covenants. God instituted, and all seven of them, the one at Sinai was also a covenant of grace that God gave him. Here's grace, and I'm going to show you how it works. Oh, no, we don't like that one. We want to replace that with a legal one. So we have the covenant of grace, which is manifested in multiple ways to multiple people in different ways and so forth over time, but still one covenant. And then the one that the people initiated, where we're going to do all this stuff, and we're going to earn and merit response. And so you see it coming up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Greek word for substance is hypostasis. The first half is hypo, like in hypoglycemic or hypotensive, and it means under or low. And the last half, stasis, means standing. Translated into Latin to substance, sub, submarine, subterranean, subway, under or low. And stance, standing, translated into English, faith is our understanding of things hoped for. And both definitions apply. It's first your comprehension of the realities of who God is, what our condition is, and his goodness. We have to understand the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we have our faith as our understanding of our condition and God's solution for it. And with that understanding, we enter into an understanding with God. That's the second definition of the word. And that's the understanding that God, I can't, fix myself. I've got to, I'm terminal. But your love and you have provided what's necessary to fix me if I simply trust you and let you. I understand and I know an understanding with you, Lord, that I surrender to you for your will to be done in my life. Our faith is the understanding of of what we will experience and ultimately have in the hereafter when God finishes his work in us. So that's, that's, that, and that's the covenant. That's it, right there. So one of the founders of the SDA church wrote on the Sixth Bible Commentary, page 1077, the following. 
I think you might find this quite... It would be humorous if it wasn't so sad. The spirit of bondage is engendered by seeking to live in accordance with legal religion. Though striving to fulfill the claims, through striving to fulfill the claims of the law in our own strength, there is hope for us only as we come under the Abrahamic covenant, which is the covenant of grace by faith in Christ. The gospel preached to Abraham through which he had hoped had hope was the same gospel preached to us today through which we have hope. Abraham looked unto Jesus, who was the author and finisher of our faith. One covenant. Here's another quote from Faith I Live By, page 77. As the Bible presents two laws, what are the two laws? Seriously, what are the two laws? Imperial and design. Imperial and design. Two laws. As the Bible presents two laws, one changeless and eternal, that would be design law, the other provisional and temporary. Temporary. What law was added because of sin, according to Galatians? Which one? Can you name it precisely? The Ten Commandments and the, and the ceremonial law, both, were added because of sin. Now, if you're uncomfortable with that, just think with me. Did angels in heaven need a law to honor their mothers and fathers and not to commit adultery, and that sins will pass down three and four generations? But was the eternal law of God in operation in heaven that Satan broke? Yes. The Ten Commandments was a distillation and codification of the principles of love specifically written for the needs of sinful human beings. It never, it never existed in that form until Sinai. But the, the principles of love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that law, and love your neighbor as yourself, that law, they were already in existence. Those are eternal and changeless. So, as there are two laws, one changeless and eternal, the other provisional and temporary, there are two covenants. The covenant of grace was first made with man in Eden. After, when after the fall, there was given a divine promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. To all men, all human beings, this covenant offered pardon and the assisting grace of God for future obedience through faith in Christ. It also promised them eternal life on the condition of fidelity to God's law. Pause. Are we back to a legal rule system here? When you you got to keep the law. If you don't, you're, you're getting a demerit. You're, you're going to get a ticket in heaven. You're, you're going to get kicked out. He's going to have an angel of flaming sword monitoring. Is that what you hear? Do you hear design law? Why is it fidelity? Why is the condition of eternal life conditional upon fidelity to the law? Why? It's the law of life. It's no different than saying that your life is conditional upon harmony with the law of respiration. Tie a plastic bag over your head and transgress the law. You don't have life there. It's all. It's very simple. When you understand reality and how God built it, life only exists in harmony with his designs. Out of harmony is death. Yes, hand, yes. I think Jesus wants to rich young ruler learned how to live by faith because he lived by the law. That's why he said, God and give all your money and follow me because you need to live by faith. I like the lesson there. The covenant of grace is not a new truth, for it existed in the mind of God from all eternity. This is why it is called the everlasting covenant. One covenant. The covenant of grace, manifested in time in various places, but one covenant. Yes. Which makes me think of Isaiah 35, starting with verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with 
fearful hearts. Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance. He will come with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Okay, and, and do you understand uh, those language? When you hear stuff like that, what's the first question to ask? What law lens am I looking through? Okay. If you go through the human law lens, what's vengeance and wrath look like? Using power to hurt somebody else. If you go through design law lens, laws upon which life are built, what does wrath and vengeance look like? Do doctors ever take wrath upon anything and vengeance upon anything? How about smallpox? How about HIV virus? How about cancer cells? Will doctors use powerful tools of radioactive substances to blast and eradicate cancer cells? Will they do it? Do doctors hate death and hate disease and hate corruption? Do they hate their patients dying of terminal diseases? See, when you understand design law, God is angry at sin because he loves sinners. Under imposed law, he's angry at you for breaking the rules. And he's got to punish you for it. And so that's a great quote. And, and you will have clarity if you come back and ask the design law question. It just, it just is the lens. And this is the message that is to go forth to light in the world to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea. We can't worship the creator if we teach he functions like a Roman dictator. And we teach his laws, an arbitrary test of obedience, that when you break it, he's got a uh, demerit in a book, and then he's going to use power to torture you, and there's going to be a little tribunal, and you get to sit in council, and you get to decide how long this person must be tortured in the fire. And you take off 37 seconds because they were in Sodom, and they already had 37 seconds of fire, so they get 37 seconds less than the new fire. It's silliness. Sunday's lesson. At the end of the third paragraph, lesson says, sin is the antithesis of creation, bringing decreation and death instead. Isn't that another great statement in this lesson? Two great statements in this lesson. Think, think where they're putting the source of death coming from this lesson. And it's exactly right. Sin is the antithesis of creation. And antithesis means the opposite. Works in the opposite principles and protocols. It brings decretion. It goes destruction. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature, reap destruction. This is exactly biblical. This is exactly design law, think. You can't have life outside God's design law. You can't have health violating the laws of health. You can't do it. And that's as simple as the Bible gets right there. Unfortunately, God has been portrayed again as a Roman dictator, and it's not about design law and how reality works. It's just about him enforcing rules. Tuesday's lesson, it was about the commandments, and I, I mentioned a moment ago the Ten Commandments were added. Well, Galatians says it was added, uh, the law was added because of transgression until the seed came. And uh, just a couple of quotes, one from Selected Messages, Volume 1, uh, page 230. The law of God existed before the creation of man, or else Adam could not have sinned. After transgression of Adam, the principles of the law were not changed, but were definitely arranged and expressed to meet man in his fallen condition. And I gave some examples about that. And there's some other quotes in the lesson, but I want to move on to some more fun stuff. So, um, in Wednesday's lesson, uh, it says that the people took four pledges. And I want to just go through those four pledges very quickly. Um, and the four pledges were no, uh, no mixed marriages... Uh, true Sabbath observance, debt cancellation, and financially supporting the temple. What were the purpose of these pledges? Short their behavior. 
What lens are you looking through? First question, law lens, design law, okay. And what's the, and the design law lens always leads you back to, well, what's actually transpiring? And what, what landscape are we? We're in the landscape of the great controversy about the Messiah trying to come. And, and God has already uh, indicated he's working through a particular family. This family's been under assault. Uh, so do we understand that all four of these were related to fulfilling the promise and bringing Messiah? Can you see that? Well, let's see. And, and carrying out their purpose. We already established that mixed marriages undermines usefulness for God's cause. We already established that. And yet a joint marriage where two people share the purpose enhances. You can actually do more as a couple than you can do as a single person oftentimes if you're both on the same team and supporting and encouraging each other. So it enhances the fulfillment of God's calling for them as a people to, have not, to not have mixed marriages. True Sabbath observance... What is the purpose of the Sabbath? I'm going to go through these four, and I'll get to you in a second, Wendell. Um, It was made for man as a gift from God for a purpose. What was its purpose? It was a tool to assist us in holiness. That's what it was for. The Sabbath is a sign that I am the Lord that makes you holy. So again, this true Sabbath observance is about coming back to a recognition of God as creator, trusting him with your life, and experiencing the transformation of heart, which makes you more effective in carrying out the mission. So both of these are right, putting people to be more effective for mission. Uh, debt cancellation. Does being in debt obstruct ability to engage in any other mission other than paying your debt? The bigger the debt, the more you're obstructed. True or false? Yes. So debt cancellation would enhance people's ability both with time. I don't have to work that extra shift to pay my debt. I can actually volunteer at Temple today because I'm not in debt anymore. And also in giving more of your resources to build the temple. And then financially supporting the temple, it's an object lesson, the temple. It's a stage. It's a theater. Cool props, costumes, script to act out the plan of salvation. And it would be an attraction, a wonder of the world that people from all over would want to come see. And when they come see this wonder of the world, you've got this group of people who are holy, who are living in harmony with God's design, who are able and educated and discerning to see the difference between God's design plan and the corruption of worldly systems so that they can educate the world. So you can see all four of these were really designed to empower these people to fulfill mission, which is light in the world, to be priests and witnesses, and keep open avenue for Messiah. Yes, Wendell. Just like today, um, I think that people tended to go to level one. And so many of the people probably did level five. Others did level one. They're contract. Yep. They're in a contract. That's level two. Cool. Level one is reward and punishment. I just don't want to be punished. I want to get a reward. Level two is we got a deal. Yeah. So many of the people probably signed this contract under level two thinking. Just like today, many people do level two thinking. Whereas actually it can be through God's grace. Well said. So um, we're going to finish up the last few minutes jumping into Thursday's lesson. It asks about the temple and why it was so important to faith as a whole. Uh, the te- was the temple service necessary for any human being at any time in history to experience salvation? No. Get your mind around that. There's this mythos in Christianity that during Old Testament times people were saved by temple service, by animal sacrifice. It's mythos. It is not biblical. You will read in the Old Testament in Hosea 6, 6, I would rather my people uh, love me than bring animal sacrifices to me. 
Read Isaiah chapter 1, where he berates them for all of their feast days and holidays and burnt offerings. He says, come let us reason together. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. These were only teaching tools, just teaching tools, to enlighten the mind to the reality of their condition and the plan to heal and restore them in the inner person, to write the law in the heart and mind. It was all just teaching tool stuff. But they, level 2, got a contract, I, I do my right to ritual, then God's obliged to bless me with health and wealth. They are not thinking about any regeneration at all. And thus it darkened minds instead of enlightened minds, but it was real purpose was for an enlightening and a teaching tool. So nobody ever was saved through temple worship. And this is important because in the world today, there's a mythos in Christianity that there's going to come a time when all the Christians go, we're gone. And then the Jews begin carrying out their animal sacrifices in temple mount worship again. And somehow that becomes valid again, and somehow God saves them through animal sacrifices. That's a common teaching. Millions of people believe this. That's why, by the way, evangelical Christianity and the United States of America are such strong supporters of Israel. They're not strong supporters of Israel because Israel is a democratic nation in a world of a bunch of non-democratic nations, and thus it makes political sense for nation groups for us to align together. That's not why we primarily support them. We primarily support them because we have this mythos that we think that Israel is going to one day rule the world by rebuilding the temple and offering animal sacrifices again. And those same people think in Old Testament times it was through animal sacrifices that sins were taken care of. Read Hebrews. Animal sacrifices have no ability to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. And it's about heart renewal, writing the law on the heart and mind. So all of it was theater, all of it was symbol. And in our DVD out here, if you don't have it, there's one on the table. It's free. It's the sanctuary service. Go through a whole bunch of details about what those symbols were. But I thought I would share some different ones that are not in the DVD because you can only share so much in a, in a construct that's so big. So I'll share some different symbols and unpack some of the meaning fairly quickly for you today. Um, how about the covering of the sanctuary, the, the, the one that was actually built in the desert, not the stone one? The one that was actually built in the desert had um, three layers that, uh, of, of animal skin. Uh, uh, the first one, or the first layer, was goat hair. They made a, they made a, uh, a covering out of goat hair, and goat hair and, and goats in, in Scripture represent sinfulness and human sinfulness that was the outermost that was the innermost innermost layer. innermost layer okay goat skin representing sinfulness you remember rebecca used goats to deceive a, a isaac david's uh, wife michael used goat hair as a pillow to deceive saul in the judgment metaphor the wicked are described as the goats and in the day of atonement jesus who knew no sin but became sin for us is represented as a goat not because he was sinful, but because he took our sin upon himself in order to cure it. Okay, But every other day, besides atonement, he's represented by the lamb. Okay, So the goat hair represents human sinfulness. And this, curtain was made out of a, this, uh, this covering was made out of 11 separate curtains that were sewed together into two groups. One group was a group of six. The other group was a group of five. In Bible numerology, six is the number of fallen humanity. It was made on day six, and that's why the BC system is 666. Six, six. It's just fallen and short of God's ideal of seven. Um, the number five in Bible uh, symbolism represents... Um, uh, grace, the grace of God. And so what happened is the number six was unified with the number five, and this represents Christ becoming sin for us and his grace overcoming sin in us. And this was the covering of the temple, the first covering. The, and then the, next it was covered by ram skin, which was dyed in red. Rams were the animals offered to consecrate the priesthood. And Jesus, of course, is our high priest, 
uh, and our healing solution. So the ram skins were dyed red, symbolic of Christ, our high priest, who's a perfect sacrifice and surrendered to become our remedy to sin. And it covers the sinfulness of our humanity. He covers us. And that's part of the new covenant experience. And the next covering that went over was the badger skin, which is a tough, durable, impenetrable cover uh, withstood all the nature could throw at it, representing Christ's righteousness that can handle everything that the devil threw at him. And then when we um, accept him, uh, it handles all the stressors that the, the devil can throw at us. And so this was the covering. Our sinfulness covered by Christ's righteousness, covered by Christ's protection. So, and then one more, the boards in the sanctuary, inside the, the, uh, the building there. Consider the symbolism of making a board. In order to make a board for the sanctuary, first you had to cut down a tree. I don't know if you know in Bible, but people are rep- represented frequently as trees in the Bible. So the tree has to be cut down, meaning the tree has to sever its roots from the earth. And it has to cut off its branches of fruit. It's symbolic of we cut our ties to earthliness or this world, and we stop producing fruits of sin in order to become a board in the sanctuary of God. The boards represent our earthless, and they were covered in gold, representing the righteousness of Christ. So the boards are analogous to the temple, stones fitted for the temple. We are living stones built together in the house of the Lord. The boards are the same thing, uh, cut from the earth and uh, fitted for God's usefulness, covered in the righteousness of Christ, the gold. The boards... um, represent the believers composing of the sanctuary who are rooted now in Christ. There were ten boards on each side, and ten represents completion, like ten toes representing the nations of the world in the, in the other uh, system. There were, um, in the back, there were six boards, and six, again, represents fallen humanity, connected to two corner boards, and the corner boards, two, represents Christ, who's the second member of the Godhead, and together that makes eight, and that represents a new beginning. And so our humanity connected with Christ, we have a new beginning uh, in him. And uh, the board stood upright, symbolic of those who are in Christ's kingdom, that we stand upright. And they are um, anchored into two um, silver sockets, which were each um, made out of um, 30, excuse me, 3,000 shekels that came from soldiers who would have to give a half a shekel each. And so one board would be the offering from 12,000 soldiers to, to support one board and showing the cost. And then finally on the boards, they were held together with five bars made out of uh, a porous wood covered in gold, representing those five bars, and then five represents grace. So those five bars made out of wood covered in gold represents Christ who took our humanity but perfected it. Four of the bars went up the side, but one bar went straight through the middle of each board, representing Christ in you, the hope of glory. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have gone to such extreme lengths to try to reach us with the truth about how you have built reality to operate. The devil is such a good liar, and he's infected us so easily with this idea that you're imperialistic and you just make up rules. But we love to worship you, our creator, the builder of reality, the God who is always loving, always kind, always gracious, always forgiving. And we ask that your spirit of truth and love will come and, and write your law in our hearts and minds. And may it be Christ that lives in us, that we can be radiant lights in this world, and we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.